from the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. For years now, pain has been the leading cause of disability worldwide, affecting more than 50 million Americans annually. But this isn't the kind of pain you endure when you trip on the pavement, scab your knee, bruise, and heal. It's the persistent, gnawing, aching, throbbing that happens over a long period of time. This is chronic pain. One of the most powerful and effective forms of treatment for chronic pain is the safe use of opioids. Opioids, in combination with other therapies, have allowed those hindered by pain to live full and vibrant lives. But the stigma around opioid use was exacerbated in 2016 due to guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, that both seriously discouraged doctors from prescribing these drugs and also over-attributed the prescription of them as the cause of addiction and overdose. While opioids are not a one-size-fits-all pain reliever, the rollback on prescriptions has disproportionately impacted people with disabilities, people of color, women, and incarcerated folks. Kate Nicholson, founder of the National Pain Advocacy Center, believes now is the time to course-correct. Pain relief, in her view, is a civil right. Kate joins us today to share her personal story, why it's so important folks have access to appropriate pain relief, and what she expects from the updated CDC guidance on opioids this year. Kate, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to At Liberty. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I want to just start with orienting our audience. We are talking about physical pain relief. And so for people who have been fortunate to not deal with this kind of chronic pain. I think it can be really hard to understand what pain can do to you and in your life. So for folks listening who might not even know what chronic pain is or what living with that is like, can you explain? Sure. Um, First, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between acute and chronic pain. um, And then I'll uh, tell you a little bit about my own experience with chronic pain, just to be illustrative. So um, everybody experiences pain. It's adaptive. We need it um, in order to tell us to rest or pull our hand from the fire. Um, And in fact, people who have a genetic predisposition not to experience pain actually don't live very long. The problem is when it becomes chronic, it changes. It begins to lose that adaptive function and it actually acts more like a disease. It harms every body system. And that's why from a medical point of view, it really needs to be treated and managed. And even acute pain when it's severe needs to be treated and managed or we don't heal well. My own experience with chronic pain um, occurred in the 90s. I um, had a surgical injury that left me uh, to part of my spinal cord that left me in very severe pain and um, unable to sit or stand or walk for about 18 years. So I was largely bedridden, um, couldn't even sit, so I couldn't even benefit from the use of a wheelchair. And I was in constant, intractable, severe pain. And that has lots of consequences. It makes it very difficult for you to be able to, you know, engage in life activities, do the dishes, you know, 
carry children, all kinds of things. Um, for a lot of people, there's a real concurrence with um, depression and anxiety as well, because you're in this very trapped, isolated state of persistent pain. And that can be really debilitating emotionally as well to be in that kind of constant severe pain. I do want to say that that 50 million um, figure is basically people who report pain every day or nearly every day of their lives. That's not necessarily everyone with super severe pain. 20 million or nearly 20 million, 19.6, have pain that prevents them from engaging in those really basic activities. So I would have been in that 20 million group for those 18 years before I had a series of surgeries that did restore my mobility. So, um, you know, that is also a possibility, you know, took two decades, but, but things can change for people too. People can eventually heal. 20 million is still an astounding number to be in that kind of incapacitating level of pain. Your experience has led you to care about these issues and your understanding of what this is for other people and your need for survival as well. You were a civil rights attorney at the Justice Department, right? For nearly two decades? Yes, that's that's correct. I would love for you to just take our listeners through your evolution. How does one go from the Justice Department to this work? It's a good question. So um, my work as a civil rights attorney in the Justice Department was all focused on health rights. Um, So I started uh, working in the division um, that was enforcing the Americans with Disabilities Act right out of law school, actually out of a clerkship, which people often do after law school. And uh, I did not have a disability myself when I began. Um, And early on in my career, a lot of my early cases stemmed from one of the last great public health crises, which was HIV and AIDS. We had just so many complaints of discrimination, you know, movers that wouldn't convey people's belongings, funeral homes that would not involve the bodies of the dead, um, and lots and lots of discrimination in healthcare. So I saw pretty early on in my career how during these public health crises, we often end up stigmatizing and othering those that we are purporting to help. And that ends up leading to discrimination and the thing they likely need most, which is access to healthcare itself. So I worked in the Justice Department all that time and was, as I said, largely bedridden um, and did use prescribed opioids to manage pain. Uh, I tried about 37 different other kinds of treatment over three years first, including some invasive surgeries, and nothing really was able to to alone help. And so in combination with other treatments, um, I did use opioids. My, my providers basically said, we've, we've given you everything we have. Um, this is the only tool left in the toolbox. And um, I had been worried about using them, less about addiction, but more that I wanted to be able to keep working. And I, I thought they might make my thinking fuzzy. And they actually really helped. They actually opened space in my mind and allowed me to work under those extraordinary circumstances. So I took them long term for many years. Um, and then flash forward 18 years later, I had a series of surgeries actually that have restored my mobility and I no longer require uh, use of, of the pain medication, which is just good fortune uh, for me. Yeah. 
I'm one of the lucky ones. Uh, you know, I didn't do anything noble to no longer require them. Uh, it's just that surgical techniques improved and, and um, I was able to, to function without them. But I had one last sort of chapter um, in, in my experience that really brought me into this conversation, particularly in relation to pain and opioids. And that is that I had moved to Colorado sort of to learn to walk again and rehabilitate um, and had left the Justice Department and things were going well. I was going down on my medication and I went into the doctor's office one day and this was in 2015. And my doctor said, I'm not going to prescribe opioids anymore to any of my patients effective immediately. And you won't find anyone else in the area willing to either. And what had happened is that- must have been terrifying. It was terrifying for me. It was because I'd worked for 18 years to try and improve. And I finally had a shot at improving. And I thought, oh my gosh, this, this could completely undermine my progress. Luckily for me, I had a prior treatment team in D.C., Um, And they were willing to give me a tapering plan, which is really important when you've taken opioids long term. It's very dangerous to cut people off precipitously because um, anytime you take the medication long term, you become physiologically dependent on it, which is different from addiction. A lot of people confuse those two things. Um, It just means you have to stop slowly Uh, to give your body time to adjust. Um, Addiction is actually the compulsive use of a substance despite negative life consequences. Um, Whereas someone who uses, you know, medication appropriately is using it um, on a, usually on a preset prescribed um, schedule with positive benefits. So it's very different. But anyway, I I sort of, um, I was okay but after, in 2016, after the, the CDC published um, its guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain, I began to hear my story repeated throughout the country um, in the disability community in particular. And so after I had a second surgery, um, I actually had sort of a full body uh, brace on, but I decided to get up uh, and do a TEDx talk and, and start advocating and writing op-eds and have just, um, you know, been working on policy. There were lots of bad policies that that came out of that, and we can talk about that more. Um, but in, in the course of working on some of those policies, I amassed a group of experts and, and, and people with lived experience who were, who were also passionate about this topic, and that eventually led to, to founding the National Pain Advocacy Center. That is quite a journey, Kate. It's always amazing, I think, to see when people are dealt with something really hard, what they're able to do with it. So you start the National Pain Advocacy Center and you give this TED Talk. And in the TED Talk, you say, pain relief is a civil right and that should be considered in a civil rights framework. Obviously, at the ACLU, we are very concerned about civil rights and civil liberties. So for people who are just totally unfamiliar with this idea of pain relief being a civil right, maybe you could just give us a little bit of context and we can then dig into it from there. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, So the idea um, really stems from human rights work, the UN Declaration on Human Rights um, and other uh, human rights work through the UN sort of looked at the importance of pain relief as a human right. Um, And in particular, 
the importance of balancing drug policy with the need for palliative care um, and pain relief. So um, it wasn't an original idea of mine. Um, it's been it's been out there for a little while. Um, in the U.S., of course, it becomes a civil rights is- issue. So, for example, it is discrimination barred by our anti-discrimination laws to refuse to see someone on the basis of their health condition in healthcare um, or the medication they take. Yet, um, unfortunately, that's exactly what's happening today. Um, What we're seeing is that in there are studies that show that in half of the primary care clinics in America will not take on someone who uses a prescribed opioid. So people are being dropped from the healthcare system altogether, entirely abandoned in care, just because they happen to be prescribed opioids. And that is a violation of, you know, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, the Affordable Care Act as anti-discrimination provisions. And then there are also lots of interesting um, sort of intersections with other areas that the ACLU focuses on. Uh, Disability rights is, of course, one, but uh, racial justice is another really important area. Yeah, that's actually exactly where I was going next. So I want to get your take on a recent study. So according to a 2021 study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Black patients and white patients who were served by the same system found that the opioid receipt patterns reflected both over-treatment of white patients and under-treatment of Black patients. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about the gender pain gap how women's pain is disbelieved or uh, mistreated or undertreated. But I don't hear as much about the race pain gap. And so I think that that's also really important to note. And in that, it seems like that helps us frame pain relief as a civil rights issue as well. What do you think? So we have a situation where lots and lots of studies show that providers rate the pain of uh, Black and Brown people, BIPOC people, as being less severe because of false ideas about racial differences. And then on the other side, because of the way in which we have criminalized, sort of had the drug war and criminalized use of substances, People um, who are BIPOC are also far less likely to get pain medication, even after surgery. Women often uh, have their pain dismissed or disbelieved, even though women um, experience more severe pain, have more comorbid concurrent conditions that cause pain. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because the the sort of way in which we set up the world, even in terms of medical research, has an impact on women's health issues, because it was only in 2016 that the National Institutes of Health started requiring that we do some biomedical testing in female as well as male lab animals. And we now know that, um, at least in animals, because we've done that testing, entirely different cells are responsible for pain processing in males and females, which may be, you know, a major determinant in why women, you know, experience more, more pain and more severe pain. Um, so it is very much uh, a civil rights issue in terms of a health rights issue. Um, and of course, all of those rights have significant downstream 
economic and social implications. So it's not just whether you're believed in care, but whether you're believed in the workplace and can get an accommodation so that you can, you know, work remotely. Uh, People with invisible disabilities face um, a much higher burden in getting access to disability benefits. So, and of course, they're just life and quality of life issues. Yeah, it's a big problem. I want to pivot to addressing the opioid epidemic. We all know that the opioid epidemic has been devastating in America in recent years. There's no pretending we're all on the same page here. We all agree with this. So in an attempt to address some of these issues, the CDC put out guidance in 2016 that essentially scared doctors um, from prescribing this kind of medication. Obviously, this had an immediate impact in your own life. But I think, you know, when you look back on the problem, folks could say, hey, that makes a lot of sense to me that the CDC responded in that way. Uh, What's the problem here? So I guess what I want to ask you, Kate, is what is the problem here? Um, What do we actually need to do to ameliorate this issue? And can you explain some of the complexities that we need to address? It is, it is a very complex crisis. And just so you know, I work with a lot of harm reduction people. Um, there are people who have addiction in NPAC and addiction medicine specialists in um, the National Pain Advocacy Center as well. We do not see this as a purely binary issue. Uh, both people with pain and people with addiction are stigmatized, misunderstood, poorly treated by the healthcare system, uh, and face tremendous barriers. First of all, I think it's not an either-or situation. It's very important that we look at it comprehensively. I would say that with respect to the CDC guideline, um, yes, I mean, we ignored drug overdose deaths for far too long. I would also say, though, that those deaths um, for at least the last decade, since we started paying attention to them, have largely been driven by a tainted street supply, and that they have almost always been caused by multiple drugs being used in co- in combination. We know from the studies on drug use and health and, and other uh, big studies that most people who misuse those products didn't get them immediately from a doctor. They were not the people who were, you know, directly prescribed them, but rather they they bought them on the street, they got them from family or friends. Um, so there are sort of chinks and sort of in the narrative that are important to understand, you know, as as a matter of nuance. I would say that since, you know, one of the problems, and I'll get back to the CDC guidance in particular, but one of the problems that's happened is that we have only measured success in the gross drop in prescribing of opiates. We've definitely succeeded in dropping gross opiate prescribing on a per capita basis. But we've had really negative outcomes. And the problem is we've had escalating overdose deaths and we've had, you know, these huge barriers for people. They're like somewhere between 8 and 13 million Americans who rely on opioids long-term to manage pain. And that group, again, is being abandoned in care, has been subjected to um, really dangerous opioid cessation practices that numerous studies now show increase uh, their risk of overdose or suicide by 3 to 5%. So backing up to this, the CDC guideline, a lot of what was in that guideline was very sensible, which is, you know, telling prescribers, you know, to, to try other means of managing pain first, 
They said if you are introducing someone to opioids, you know, go slowly, use the lowest effective dose for the shortest effective period of time. And all of that is pretty non-controversial. But what happened is there were two more concrete provisions. Um, one uh, specified the number of days that someone should should get a prescription for opioids and another a dosage threshold. There was one study that showed between you know, 2016 and 2018, something like 427 laws were put into place. So there were lots and lots of, we we responded to this genuine crisis with oversight. Um, And, uh, you know, there's a real open question, I would say, in talking to my, my colleagues in the harm reduction community, whether criminalization and oversight really yields positive, uh, uh, outcomes. Um, largely, it, it does not, right? Largely, um, it, it, that's why this civil rights and human rights approach is so important. There is also the threat of criminalizing prescribers, doctors, that, that then perpetuated a, a fear of even engaging in this system. Yeah, definitely. What happened is that doctors, first of all, just through the narrative, were, were blamed for causing overdose deaths on the street. In the end of 2018, Human Rights Watch did a report on this and where they went in and interviewed doctors and patients. And the doctors said, you know, I'm I'm stopping pe- patients against my best medical judgment because I don't want to set myself up for liability. So patients became discardable in liabilities. And that's, you know, that's not the kind of effect we want. We definitely want providers to be appropriately educated, but... Um, turning patients into liabilities is part of what's led to that massive abandonment. So the CDC released a draft of their revised guidelines back in February of this year. They directly recognized that their 2016 guidance was harmful or an overcorrection. You had the chance to review the draft, and I'm wondering if you you could share what you thought of it. Sure. So just in full disclosure, um, I actually have, have had a lot of sort of input on this issue. When the CDC was developing um, its new guideline, they appointed an opioid work group, which was 23 members, um, most of them providers. But I was a member of that group that saw the initial draft. So this draft did two things um, that I think are really positive. One, it took uh, those two provisions that were the most widely misapplied, the day and dose provisions, um, and did not put them in its main recommendations. It also does mention these disparities in care that we're talking about, these inequities on the basis of race in one paragraph, but at least we got them <laughs> to put it in there. Um, so those are those are positive things. The, the thing that makes me concerned about the new guideline is that it is widely expanded. It's now going to cover all pain, acute, subacute, and chronic. It pronounces itself as a clinical practice guideline was, that was developed without much input from practicing clinicians. Um, our feeling as an organization is that they need a lot more input from the variety of practitioners um, who are going to be, you know, covered now by this guideline. So they published it in February. The comment period closed on April 11th. Um, it, it looks like it got out in a, over 5,000 comments, um, many from medical societies. So we'll see if there are improvements, but I have, I have continued concerns. 
Thank you so much for that thorough review of what's going on. I think it's really important for people to know. I also want to touch on the kind of surveillance and criminalization that accompanies pain treatment. Now, we know that this isn't new, but perhaps it's been heightened as a response to the rise in overdose deaths. How are people who seek pain care treated by our systems? Yeah, we have a woman in our group um, who was basically had the police called on her when she went to the emergency room in pain. And she's Black. You know, I mean, there's, you know, they just assumed she was drug seeking and literally called the police just because she said, I'm, I'm in pain. And, you know, our, our criminal justice system is full of people with disabilities, too. That's another thing. You know, I ask people sometimes to imagine what it's like to be a, a pain patient in America who's, who's being treated well, who hasn't been dropped in care, who hasn't been forcibly tapered, who is actually receiving medication. Number one, you have to sign a contract with your provider that you will take your pills on a schedule, that you will, you know, submit to all of these things. Most people don't have to sign a contract to get access to healthcare. You know, number two, you have to be subject, you can be subjected to pill counts. They can call you and say, you got to come in right now and we're going to count your pills to make sure you're not misusing. Number three, you're usually subjected to drug testing. So there are all kinds of mitigation measures that we have put into place. Like doctors need to check prescription drug monitoring programs. Um, There's now you know, algorithms that sort of look at the dose you're taking and people can get flagged for that reason. So, you know, you are subjected to a tremendous amount of oversight when your pain is being treated well. So we, you know, we do really, you know, penalize people for taking these medications. And we do, we do for opioid use disorder as well. I mean, think about people having to go to methadone clinics and showing up to get, you know, medication. So controlled substances are a mainstay of modern medicine. You know, they're not just opioids for pain. They're medication for ADHD, medication for epilepsy, all kinds of things. Um, but we really um, require an awful lot of surveillance to allow people to get care. Um, And that can lead to a lot of further stigmatization and trauma in the system. And of course, the group that you mentioned in particular, people who are incarcerated are going to be in the worst situation. They're already so limited and um, are treated you know, if bad things happen in, in, in the country, if you're not incarcerated, they're going to be worse <laughs> if you're in the system, right? So, yeah, I mean, there is a real sort of criminalization model for any, you know, because of the, the controlled substances. And in fact, we uh, we recently filed an amicus brief. There are a couple of cases before the Supreme Court right now about the proper standard for holding a provider, a prescriber liable, under the Controlled Substances Act, because basically those standards have become so watered down that people, you know, can be held responsible, doctors, just for, um, you know, without having criminal intent, which is sort of a, a foundational idea in our legal system. Um, and so th- that has led to a further chilling effect. So it's just this sort of ricochet effect of, of surveillance and oversight. And there's also this bias that we should just be able to deal with deal with pain, right? That if folks need help, then there's something inherently wrong with them, which is pretty much the underpinning of ableism, right? That folks who can't function in society in the same ways that we've deemed as normative are somehow weak or unfit. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, I mean, we have to examine racism, we have to examine gender and gender identity bias, we have to examine ableism that, um, and the intersection of those things. I mean, really what we're talking about when we're talking about the racial injustices is the intersection of those problems, right? Um, and, and the things we're talking about were, are just the tip of the iceberg. We also, one of the things that COVID-19 has shown us in glaring life or death terms is the inequities experienced because of what we call social determinants of health, right? The inputs. So there's also that, um, which lead people to have, uh, poorer health, poorer health conditions. Um, yeah, I think the, the bearing up thing is really complicated when it comes to, to pain, uh, because I think most people have experienced pain at some point. They got over it. They figure what's wrong with other people who can't. Um, and I actually think there's even a greater stigmatization of people with pain today coming out of the drug overdose crisis because there's this idea, well, you, you're just the whiners who couldn't bear up. Like if you had not whined, we wouldn't have kids dying on the street. So really even blaming people for their own, um, for their pain, right? But, you know, when you have multiple transplants and develop lymphoma, it isn't just something you bear up with. When you have what I did and you can't sit, stand, or walk and you're, you know, profoundly disabled by, uh, by an injury, um, it isn't just a question of, of bearing up. And as I mentioned, it's it's important to manage the pain because it, it actually harms your health. It actually damages every, these unmanaged chronic pain damages the body. So it is a disease when it becomes chronic. Um, and we haven't quite gotten there. We're just sort of in the dark ages when it comes to you know, to dealing with pain. I absolutely think we have to look at at, at ableism, and, but also just at, you know, how, um, I think you and I spoke about this a little bit before, like how to re-envision um, some of these issues. I mean, co- the COVID pandemic has really shown us that, you know, I worked for years to try and get people the ability under the Americans with Disabilities Act to, to work remotely and um, from, and we even tried to for for women with with young children um, and that's sort of the turn of the century <laughs> it seems like but um it's uh, not the century the decade is what I meant to say but we have basically um, changed our framework because we've had to so for a long time employers said well we can't manage people if they're remote and they just weren't willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. And then COVID hit and now everyone had to learn how to pivot and work remotely. And so we know what works um, and we know that it actually works for a lot of people better, you know, that they got more productivity from employees that way. So, you know, it it sort of requires an, an active imagination, I think, to dismantle some of these ideas and to see that actually what was good for people with certain disabilities is actually good for a lot of people. In the same way that universal design is that way, in the same way that, you know, ramps don't just help people who use wheelchairs. They're also great for someone pushing a stroller, you know. Um, So part of it is just opening our minds, I think, to accepting what is, as you say, the norm right? The normative human, normal human experience um, as being a little broader, a little more complex and integrating some of that into the way that we, you know, look at all of these issues. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this conversation, Kate. Uh, I just really deeply appreciate the work that you're doing. And I'm so excited that we get to share this conversation with the At Liberty audience. 
Yeah, thank you. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.